Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this week we're chatting with Molly Elwood of Elwood's Organic Dog Meat. Yep, that's what I said. And calm down, calm down. Everybody take a collective breath. You are going to love this one because Molly is a hoot. Yeah, this was really fun. She has a form of activism that I think is probably unique. Uh, I don't know anybody else doing this, and it's pretty crazy, and she maintains it at a very intense level. Totally agreed. Molly is so friggin' brilliant, in my opinion, and what she's doing here, like, she's fearless. She really is. And it's kind of like, I think, speaks to so many of our souls, because how many times have we just looked at like dog lovers at the dog park, for example, and just saw how much they were doting on their dog and then eating, you know, a salami sandwich or whatever and just thought to ourselves, like, how, how? Well, Molly validates that part in each of us and she's really, really sending some shockwaves far and wide. So I'm super stoked about this interview. Our big problem isn't that we're wrong because obviously we know we're right or that you know people don't understand that we're we're right that people don't accept our arguments that people argue back and have good arguments so neither of those are the big problems that animals have the problem that animals have is that people just turn away and she's found a new way to get them to look And by the way, this was one of our monthly Flock Friday interviews with a live audience, virtually, of course. And so that is something... Live audience has kind of changed its meaning, hasn't it? Yeah, it it has. (laughs) This sort of is one of the perks that we offer to our Flock members. And so we have, like, as our bonus content this week, it is a QA and a with our flock to Molly. Uh, so you might hear it a little bit differently. It might sound a little bit different. Marianne and I are doing it together, for example, and things like that. So it, I hope you'll enjoy it. But before we do that, let's, let's chat about a few things. First of all, you sent me this, you send me tweets all the time or X's or whatever they're called. I call them tweets because I don't like Elon Musk. Okay. Sooner or later, I'll probably have to stop. Stop Twitter or? Uh, yeah, that is within my, well within my powers just to stop it, to stop calling it Twitter. I mean, at some point, everybody will call it X and it'll be all over. And if you Google Twitter, nothing will come up because Elon Musk, you know, owns everything. And so I just want to make clear that when I just said stop Twitter, I didn't mean like, Marianne, are you going to shut Twitter down? I meant, are you, are you going to stop going on Twitter? I like think when both you of said the, sooner or later, are probably impossible. Yeah, I see. Okay. Well, anyway, so I love this one, and it's from an account that I can't pronounce, so I'm going to spell it. the 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 account is x o i i k u. It's x o i i k u, and they wrote top down, and then in parentheses policy, and bottom up, and then in parentheses lifestyle are synergistic. Yeah, I thought it was just a really brief way to say something I kind of stumble around with talking about, and we've talked about a bunch of times, about, you know, the importance of individual action in creating systemic change. Just says it. Totally. Yeah, it's just like a little thing. But when you sent it to me, I just loved it so much. I was like, let's let's mention this to our friends who listen to our podcast. So, because you're all our friends. (laughs) 
And it's just a reminder that, you know, they're both important. Like just being vegan and not being out in the world and not doing anything to change the world for animals, well, you're not really going to accomplish much. Right. And, but just talking about policy and not making the personal changes, people just are not going to listen to you. Oh, by the way, I just wanted to tell you before we get into this article that you found, I did my climate um, my environmental connections show the other day, the climate. Oh my God. Yes. That's what yeah, we should talk about. Climate topics. And it was like amazing. I, I really enjoyed it and I'm excited about getting into vegan issues on it. I of course brought veganism up, but like, I'm going to bring it up when I'm able to. This was a bit of an aside, like someone was talking about packaging of food and they were talking about cheese. And I said that I eat BioLife cheddar shreds and I brought it into the conversation. BioLife vegan cheddar shreds, I said. Yeah, because this, this particular episode was not about food. It was right. about packaging. I mean, yeah, I just want to make yeah. clear, it's not like, it's not right, like you're right. resisting bringing it up at all, but, no. but you need to stick to the topic at hand. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so anyway, uh, like I'll link to it in the show notes and, and there is a TV show forthcoming as well in April, it's going to launch. So I'm having a lot of fun with that. And Marianne, you are always so helpful with that. You and Moore and Vicky were so also helpful with me, you know, uh, to, to just make sure it went well. Oh, I don't think I did much of anything, but that's great. It's, it, it's really great. It's really exciting. I can't wait to see yeah. it on TV. Right now, it's just on radio. It'll be the same episodes, right? Yeah, but there will be some extra packages in it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and it'll also be edited differently. Like, it's a shorter episode than the radio show, so... Okay, so let's talk about this article you found, which made me think of something I had read. So you found this article from Economist, and there's this uh, part about disinformation. And we're going to talk about that. But it also brought up this other article that I somehow dusted off from the back of my brain from Fast Company, also about disinformation. So let's talk about disinformation. Tell us about this article in Economist. Yeah, no, this is part of an article uh, that there there's a number of different factors of disinformation, and it's just a constant battle. I mean, you know, they're bigger than we are, and it's unbelievable how many lies they can get out of the door. This is about a paper that was released by an organization called Changing Markets. The name of the paper is Truth, Lies, and Culture Wars, the Misinformation We Face in Pushing for a Sustainable Food System. The research was also discussed by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. They uncovered around a million social media posts, all of them spreading pro-meat and dairy messaging and or anti-vegan messaging over 14 months, and analyzed the information. And uh, 78% of them were seeking to disparage climate and nutrition science, as well as alternative proteins and vegan diets, while 22% focused on enhancing the health and sustainability of meat and dairy. So they're much more focused saying what's wrong with plant-based eating than they are on saying what's right with, uh, with eating meat. But they're focusing on both. So they did a lot of analysis of where they're coming from. And unsurprisingly, the, the misinformation in the enhanced narrative can be linked directly to the meat and dairy industry. And also, particularly the attacks on alternative proteins in the disparage narrative are also linked to the meat and dairy industry. Like, not surprising, I know, but they're just, you know, they're burying people in, in misinformation and people are falling for it. The posts that they mentioned that got 
one of the most shares and was widely seen was from Donald Trump saying, we must ban fake meat to save the planet, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Lab-grown meat produces up to 25 times more CO2, study reveals. You know, that's bullshit. Literally bullshit. Well, sort of literally bullshit. And uh, But, you know, how many people read that and believe it and, and are influenced by it? And the fight is on. And they just have a lot of resources. But don't get daunted. We've got the truth. Yeah, exactly. So... This made me think of this other article from last year in Fast Company, and and we unearthed it, and it's called The Mystery of the Social Media Disinformation War on Plant-Based Meat. And it talked about the same exact study, I think, but it talked about it from the perspective of plant-based meat specifically. And, you know, it was totally crazy. We'll link to both of these. It It's really, truly bananas to me how there are all of these, like, overlapping cultural and political dimensions that carry a lot of weight and influence the public perception and and public policy. This is, to me, why we need investigative journalism and why, you know, obviously our henhouse is not even remotely investigative journalism, but to me it is it points to the power of responsible media as well. We need to make sure that there is accountability and transparency, because all of this is really undermining environmental goals. Does it scare you at all? Well, of course it scares me. I like this subheading of the Fast Company article. Plant-based proteins are being attacked on TikTok and Instagram. Is this a big meat psyops? It definitely is. I mean, I think that the best thing that could happen would be for people to become aware of this, that they're being tricked, but I don't have much hope of that. I mean, even just TikTok influencers, you know, like, like, do people not know that these people are paid to be influencing them? <laughs> and there's, there's gazillions of them that are paid by meat and, and dairy and, and we're up against, well, we know that we're up against big powers. And the only thing we've got on our side is the truth and the animals. Well, that matters. Both of those matter. Honestly, when you think about manipulation, though, it does make me think of Molly, our, our guest today, Molly Elwood, because she is very manipulative she's as so well. Manipulative. She's manipulative on the side of the angels. That should be her like tagline. <laughs> Molly Elwood, manipulative on the side of the angels. But it is interesting because it's keying into people's, you know, as you would say, people's rising anxieties. And and then they're caught in it, like in this incredibly vulnerable way and vulnerable because they're incensed once they learn about the dog meat, which we will let her explain, not us. So shall we get to that interview? Yeah, let's get to it. Molly Elwood is a writer, copywriter, storyteller, and creative strategist. Between creative agencies and in-house creative teams, she has spent more than 10 years writing and humanizing for her clients. She is also the creator of Elwood's Organic Dog Meat, a satirical, comprehensive, and wickedly effective social media phenomenon. What began as a grassroots movement designed to provoke a conversation about how we treat animals is now creating meaningful and tangible social change. She will be joining us right after this. The Culture and Animals Foundation sponsors artists, scholars, and activists in our collective efforts to understand our fellow species more deeply and to further their rights. CAF provides annual grants, an arts prize, a lecture series, and a fellowship. 
Visit cultureandanimals.org for more information. That's cultureandanimals.org, the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Welcome to our henhouse in Bali. Hi, thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. We are very excited to talk to you, and this is our live Flock Friday interview. So welcome to the members of the Flock who are here, and we are really looking forward to chatting with the wonderful Molly Elwood today. So for those who haven't yet visited your site, if I just happened to come across Elwood Dog Meat online or on social media, describe for us what I would see. Elwood's Organic Dog Meat is a local family farm. We've been farming dogs for meat for people since 1981. Everything's organic. Everything's free range. They all have access to pasture. It is the most humane, ethical alternative to factory farmed meats. So if you visit our website, you're going to go on a little journey with us and we're going to take you through perhaps where those marketing terms may not really align with our ethics. So I feel a bit weird having this conversation because, and it's coming true right now, you pretty much don't break character very often. No, I don't. Jasmine and I were telling somebody about our interview this week who said, you know, it's Elwood dog bait, and she practically fainted. I mean, (laughs) even just saying the name of it, you know, since I see you online, I don't see you break character, but you do. I mean, there is some point. Yeah. Where you let people in on the on a joke. I guess it's a joke in some ways. Where do you draw that line? Well, online for my social presence, it's all farming all the time. We don't break character. In direct messages, we do. But it's just, it's a lot easier to just draw that line and be like, no, we are a farm. And it makes the interaction so much richer, especially when people say, this is fake. And I get to go, what? What are you talking about? (laughs) So you rely on other people kind of. Yes, yes, yes. And in fact, oftentimes, (laughs) if I can find it, I will delete all comments that say it's fake. I have blocked terms on my social media where you can't say fake, you can't say satire, you can't say parody. Just because I want people to have that experience. I want people to have to go on that journey and find out themselves what it's about. That's so brilliant. I keep thinking about the tiny chef because we interviewed. Yeah, also digital great character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We interviewed in fact, Rachel I feel Gorton. bad even saying there was a character involved. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really epic just to be chatting with Rachel about Tiny Chef and that it's bringing back things to me now. So I, oh, I have so many questions. Do you use actual industry sites as models for <laughs> how you have designed the site? Everything, everything. I'd say it is 99%. Even the wording all comes from farms, from family farms, from factory farms, from the industry, from anti-vegan comments. You know, I get messages in my inbox from people who are like, this is the stupidest thing ever. We don't care. I just posted one today. Somebody said, you vegans, it's not that we even care that much about eating meat. It's just we want to make you feel bad. (laughs) And so I got to change that and just change to be like, it's not like you dog lovers make us feel bad about eating dog meat. We just want to make you feel worse as I eat more dog meat. If you put the mirror on it, everything just becomes so gross. I, I specifically also think that we are so desensitized to the way we talk about animals and talk about the experience of eating them that if I get to use their words and just put it right back at you, then you can't accuse vegans of exaggerating. It's the same thing that you say. So, yeah. You know, I I admit, and, you know, I'm kind of ashamed of this, but I admit 
that even for me, and I think I feel pretty like horrified at seeing any animal portrayed in that way and any of that language on any site. And even for me, seeing it said about dogs, it, it has that impact. It brings it to a different level. It makes you like, right. like what? And like kind of horrified. It right. really has a huge impact. It's so funny, especially like the one I just posted today. It was somebody who was saying, so there's a new law in Massachusetts that's passing. I don't know if it has passed. I don't know the specifics of it. That is, you can't sell or purchase pork that, pork, pig that has lived without access to being able to move their bodies, being able to extend their limbs. And so somebody was sharing, they're like, all these big farms are fighting this, but we've always met these standards and you can count on us to be kind to animals. Choose a pig by half or whole animal, fill your freezer. And I was just like, when you juxtapose, we really care to fill your freezer with a half or whole dog. Suddenly you're like, how? <laughs> right. Even for us, or at least even for me, I have four dogs and I'm a little nervous that they're in hearing distance right now. <laughs> like, it's okay, you guys. It's irony. It's satire. <laughs> I really want to just pause for one second from asking you about your platform, even though I have a lot more questions about it, because I'm curious of your background. Is it in theater or writing or? <laughs> no, it's in writing, actually. So I am a writer. I worked in advertising for the last 10 years as a copywriter. I mean, I did theater in high school, but it was a long time ago. And I actually did stand up comedy for a bit. So that kind of helps with the confidence of not breaking character where you just got to keep plowing through it. So, yeah, I think that could be what you're seeing. Brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. And there's a lot of stuff like that I want to explore, but I just want to make sure that people who haven't looked at the website yet kind of understand what's there because it's not bare bones, so to speak. There's a lot on there. You have a lot of blog posts. Can you tell us a little bit about the kind of things that you make blog posts mm -hmm. about? Yeah, so I can just first run down what the website is. So it's elwooddogmeat.com and it starts off explaining the methods of our farm, what you can buy, and then kind of walks you through. It has these little headlines like, are you confused, you know, or disturbed? Here's why it's okay. And then at the end, it says we're not real, but perhaps think about the emotions that this brought up. Maybe there is no such thing as an animal made for food. Then I have a breeds page that talks about how our animals are raised, and that is more from the reality of how animals are raised, but with like a kind of wink to it where we're like, they may be crammed in a small shed, but they won't be in there for long. And then I have blog posts, and the blog posts all come from, they're either extended social media posts from family farms, or they are family farms blog posts where I just change a word. Basically, a lot of Elwoods at the beginning was just driven by whenever I was angry about something that I read, I just took it and I changed the words and I just republished it myself. And one of the things I really <laughs> like to do is drop in there. I try and put in the word dog as many times as possible to show you how gross it is. If, it, if you think about it as a dog, it's really gross. And then I link to pro-vegan content throughout it. If I mention something about how humanely we harvest our terriers at our DIY harvest, I'm going to link to what that actually is. I had one about how to humanely, it was about fishing and it was about these guns that are used to like stab fish in the head. It's like a little gun to have a quicker death. And so I linked to what that is. And it's just kind of like into the rabbit hole of my anger. You know, that works much better than like the rabbit hole of my anger in my head is comparing it to like raping children and I don't think that would go over well. It's, it's not as palatable. Much. No, <laughs> I guess it's too much. That's just my life is being <laughs> too much. Uh, I wrote that book. You mentioned the Bree thing. I think that Melanie Joy mentioned, who kind of also toyed with this kind of idea, but in a much different way. But she 
seem to feel strongly using breed language really hit home a lot. Like talking about a golden retriever instead of dog. Do you find that as well? That the more you drill down on exactly what kind of dog we're talking about? Definitely. And there's different dogs that go viral. It's so funny. It's playing with my audience a lot. The huskies, everyone just loves a husky. And people tag each other who have huskies or if it's corgis or if it's, um, I think Labradors are too ubiquitous. Nobody really cares much. But I think specifically pugs. What's funny is I came up with pug bacon because they have bellies and pug pig. It's just really interchangeable. So I have a voicemail set up so I can get hate mail that I like to share. <laughs> but I mean, one of the things I don't share and I have it on my to-do list to share is I get a lot of fake orders from people. Oh. You know, it's pardon me for saying it, it's always a bunch of dudes who think they're so funny and they leave me a message and like, wow, this is what I want to order, blah, blah, blah. And it's always pug bacon. And I wanted to share how unoriginal it is by <laughs> lining up all my voicemails of people going pug bacon, pug bacon, pug bacon. So number well, one seller. Do you remember that bacon moment where like 10 years ago or something, everyone would said mm, bacon? Oh, and you had bacon band-aids and bacon toilet paper and bacon every, yeah. People were getting bacon moment. Who's It's still going on. It's yeah, like it's yeah. bacon is the holy grail. Like grease and salt are good, I admit, mm-hmm. but it's all it is. <laughs> no, 100%. So you mentioned your blog. What are some of your favorite blog posts? Oh my God, let's see. My favorite one that I loved sharing a lot was about puppy veal. It came from, there's a dairy farmer in New Mexico whom I liked to take content from. She was talking about how veal is not cruel. And in fact, it's a fabulous story of sustainability. You know, we're not wasting these animals. And when they're in their veal crates, they're being fed this specific byproduct of cheese. So I loved sharing that our puppy veal is a great sustainability story. There was one where there was a massive accident where another woman was saying how much she was helping her neighbors when their pig truck fell over. And so it was like one of the neighbor's dog meat trucks collapsed and caught on fire. And we worked really hard to save the dogs we could, you know, and we're going to help them rebuild their population. A lot of stuff is horrible news stories, too, that really drives home what it, it's winter time. So there are a lot of barn fires right now and the large numbers of animals are being burned alive. And when you pitch it as cows, it's, oh, this poor farmer family has lost their livelihood and they're going to have to restock. And they don't mention the fact that it was hundreds of animals that were burned alive. But when it's uh, hundreds of corgis burned alive, suddenly people get upset about it and you see the reality of it. So a lot of the blog posts are like that. You, You mentioned that you're a copywriter, which does make sense considering what you're doing now. But can you tell us a little bit more about your backstory, like your vegan story? Yeah. And the thing I love about this is you managed to come up with something different. Like, I thought I had heard all the modes of vegan activism, but clearly there are possibilities <laughs> out there and you are mining one to the nth degree. So how did you wake up about animals unless you, you were born awake? And how did you decide to do this? I was born definitely not awake. I came from just a normal American family or rural American family. So my family went hunting and fishing and I went hunting once. I wasn't able to get a deer, but I went hunting and I did all the training for it. We had a meat freezer. I didn't think about animals at all, except for the fact that I really loved them. I was really obsessed with them. I'd, you know, rescue worms from puddles and stuff, but that's different from the animals that are on our plate. And then I thought I could go vegetarian just to try it out. When I was older, in my late 20s, I was just thinking I liked animals. And what if I just tried it out? And it turned out Vegetarianism is really easy because cheese, like you just swap out all meat for cheese and eggs and it's great. 
And then I started thinking about labels, humane labels specifically, and I was really into the cage-free, you know, humane ethical eggs. And I remember once going to the grocery store and they were sold out of my ethical cage-free humane eggs. And I was like, wait a minute, am I just not going to buy eggs today? What am I going to do? I don't get to eat eggs. And so the seeds were planted. And then I saw, I think it was either Humane League or Mercy for Animals, a video about the chicks going into the macerator. And I went, what is this I'm seeing? And, you know, the typical thought process is these videos I'm seeing are probably from some other country. They're really old. It was a one-time thing. So I went down the rabbit hole of Googling and trying to disprove veganism and was up till 4 a.m. and realized, oops, cows (laughs) be pregnant to have babies to have milk. It was so shocking. And I decided to try veganism for just a month. I think it was February. And I was like, I'll try it. It's not going to work. And thank God. I won't have to be vegan. And then it was really unfortunate because it was real easy. And so I was like, oh my God, am I vegan now? I guess I'm vegan. And so I tried to hide it for quite some time. But I think the truth of everything, as I started to talk to people about it, I felt the need to, like, you know, the the first person I tell is my uncle. And he's like, he's like, well, you know, almonds use a lot of water. I'm like, oh, I can't be vegan because almonds use water. And so then you Google that and then you find Earthling Ed's 30 Arguments book which is fabulous. And I memorized it. I printed it out and I highlighted everything because I was ready to fight. I was ready for anybody to try and disprove veganism to me. And then it was funny because nobody wanted to talk to you about it. Like that's true. <laughs> After you're armed, nobody cares. Nobody wants to hear about it. I want to hear the rest of the answer, but I am just curious. Did you know any other vegans at this time? I did. What was funny is one of my good friends and my boss was vegan. And I remember taking him out for like lunch And I took him to a place where he couldn't eat anything. He ate like a dry bagel. I didn't think about it. I was like, come with me to the bagel shop. And I remember asking him, why are you vegan? And he goes, you know, I just saw too many videos. I just don't want to be part of it anymore. And the lack of specificity, like if he had said, did you know, I would have. But, you know, he was very polite. He's being very respectful. And I also thought when I decided to go vegan, I basically thought I was going to die. I just assumed you were going to die. And that was fine because I couldn't handle being a part of that problem to animals. And then when I had my first, you know, like they do the blood tests at work for your insurance to keep your health insurance or whatever. And I remember getting my first blood test and it was like, have you been fasting? And I went, no. And turns out it's good for you. (laughs) Who could have guessed? It was amazing. I wasn't going to die. Uh, well, okay. So I'm glad you didn't die because, yeah. well, you'd be sitting here talking to nobody, which would just be <laughs> awkward. But aside from that, your Elmwood dog me wouldn't exist. Yeah. So tell us about that journey for you. Yeah. Because as Marianne mentioned, it's unique. Well, it's funny because I didn't go out setting out to do this. I'd done a lot of activism and I just felt that I could do more. And so I was always trying to find new things to do. I lived across the street from Trader Joe's and I bought one of those little real estate boxes and I painted it white and put a big heart on it. And I said, info about animals. And inside I would like put recipes and magazines and stickers and stuff. And It was always full. Every time I opened it, it was always full. No one had taken anything ever. I was like, there's books in here, free books. And it was like, no. What it was, I wanted a good vegan bumper sticker for my car. And I didn't like any of the bumper stickers that were out there. I thought some of them were too preachy. Some of them were too vague. Some of them couldn't drive it home. A lot of them are really busy. They have way too much information. Yeah, exactly. That's that's so vegan. Like you want to tell everybody everything. Everything, all the things. And so it was funny because my husband and I were brainstorming about what the best bumper sticker would be. And we thought, wouldn't it be funny if we made a sticker that looked like we were selling dog meat and then just put an extra one next to it that said, why are you mad? 
bro, go vegan, you know, something like that. And then I went, you know, you can just design and print things online. I was like, well, what if I actually made it go to a website? And I was like, what if I made a website? And then I just made a website and I didn't expect anybody to look at it. It was just a website for me and my bumper sticker. And then as I was sharing it on social media, people really liked it. And I went, oh, maybe I should make social media for it. And then it went viral. And suddenly I'm a dog meat farmer two years later. So it's just kind of spiraled. So I know that one of the things that you've said is that it's important to avoid the defensiveness that automatically arises Mm -hmm. and makes people shut down. So how does this approach, in your opinion, get away from activism that immediately puts up people's defenses? I think it kind of short circuits a lot of things because you spend most of it not thinking about your own self. In the discovery phase of what the heck is this, you are going, what is this? I'm upset. This is awful. I think X, Y, and Z, whatever feelings you have about eating dogs are going to be going in your mind and it has nothing to do with you. Then when you find out what it is, it still isn't about you. Then you're still thinking about why did they make this? It's still not an attack on you. You're still focusing on the idea. And I think that that's one of the just magical random thing that has popped up through this is it stops targeting the person immediately. It allows you to have discussions about the animals in a way that is not personal until it's personal enough as in I have dogs and I care about them. So, yeah. Yeah, the people who I have in mind who would be kind of the angriest at you Mm -hmm. are definitely animal lovers, dog and cat lovers who maybe have vegetarian inclinations, yeah, but not really. Like they kind of just say that. Have you noticed that at all? Definitely. I mean, there's people this works for and there's people this doesn't work for. This doesn't work for hunters. This doesn't work for adventurous eaters, you know, but it is people who are on the edge. The people who go vegan because of this are people who are animal lovers who have flirted with the idea but never really understood what it meant. It's me in the grocery store looking at that cage-free egg going, I'm going to visit this farm someday and I'm going to make sure that everything's fine. I just don't have time for it right now, but I definitely care about animals. This is the person who needs that one last shove. And if not, it's the seed planted for that person for later on. So, And Marianne, I know you have a question and no, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just, I, I need to ask this. And uh, Marianne, don't listen too closely because you're a lawyer, but has there ever been anyone who's tried to shut down your page because of what you just mentioned, like false advertising or anything like that? Yeah. You know, what's funny is the first thing I did when it went viral is I spoke to a lawyer It falls under satire and parody kind of laws. I'm actually not false advertising. And tell me if I'm wrong. False advertising would be like, I actually send you something that says it's dog meat and it's not dog meat. I'm not actually selling selling anything. I'm not selling anything. Yeah. I mean, I do have shirts and stickers for sale, (laughs) but I'm not selling anything. So there's not false advertising. So, yeah. You're my favorite person of 2024 so far. Marianne, go ahead and ask your question. (laughs) So going back a little bit to what you were talking about, the people who respond or the dog, you know, dog lovers. And I do see them online in the comments and people are furious, just furious. I mean, are those the people who wake up or does the anger work in your favor as an activist tool? I think it does. I have all these auto responses that I can just drop in. So when things go viral, I just get a lot of things in my DM that's just death threats and F you yeah. and blah, blah. So people so hate you a lot. They hate me. I love it. So my oh. response is I have one. It's like, you're a very compassionate advocate for animals. This is the anger that we want. This is the anger that all vegans feel, that we all want to express. This is how you can feel about any animal. I also think, you know, it's meant to make you angry and you're supposed to sit in that emotion and be like, why do I feel this way? 
I don't know if you saw on plant-based news, a video went viral of a kid knocking over an Elwood's dog meat tasting stand at the, I think, University of Texas. One of your previous guests, Faraz Harsini, with the ASAP, he includes Elwood dog meat in his activism on campus. And they caught a big one and they caught him on camera of a kid just destroying knocking over all the signs and screaming into the camera, dogs, how can you do this? And I talked to this kid afterwards and I was like, well, what did you feel? And he was just like, he was so upset that everyone was standing by and no one was doing anything. He's like, how can all these... I have a lot of sympathy for him. I know. And that's the thing. And it was great because I felt bad going, you know, I'm so sorry that this went viral. And he's very confident. He's like, I'm not mad because in everybody's eyes, I'm standing up for dogs. I'm a hero. It doesn't matter. Like I behave the way that everyone would behave. And I was like, it's true. You did. So, wow. I'm currently listening to the audiobook of Britney Spears' memoir. I'm going somewhere Where are we with, going this with this. I am. I am. <laughs> that was such a left turn. No, no, no. I am. I went and I watched right before this interview. I went and I watched Oops, I Did It Again. And so it's in my head. And every time you're talking, you're like the kid, you know, getting angry, like, oops, I did it again. Or you posting another graphic and pissing someone off. Like, I think oops, I did it again needs to be your song. I played with your, oops, I did it again. I played with your heart or whatever. Yeah, yeah. got lost in the dog meat game. Yeah. I'm not sure I recommend the Britney Spears memoir in case anyone's wondering. I'm not sure you're really tying this in, Jasmine. (laughs) Well, okay. I've been up since 3.30 this morning, so... Marianne, why don't you take the next question before this (laughs) continues to devolve? (laughs) Yeah, I want to go back to actually the subject of the interview. And you had mentioned, and I'm really curious about this, and I hope that a lot of people listening to this interview are as well, that it's not just you. Other activists are using Elwood materials Mm -hmm. on their own. Can you talk about that a little bit and how you would recommend people would use this? Maybe avoiding people getting quite as mad at them as Hughes for people not into that. <laughs> yeah. No, some people may be into that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It was really exciting the first time someone reached out to me and asked if they could do a dog meat tasting. And I was really nervous because I had done it at Vegandale and I'd had somebody get really angry and wipe everything off my tables. And it was really scary wow. and intimidating. And I went, wow. I can't, I don't know about the legality of this. I don't want to be responsible if anybody's hurt. But I realize activists are bold people who do stuff all the time that make people get upset and do things like this. So I made a part on my website. It's elwooddogmeat.com backslash farmhands. And I have a bunch of free downloads. You can download posters. You can download banners. You can do tastings. I've explained how you can set up a table. I've only done it once myself. And, you know, it depends on where you are. Can you get kicked out? I'm not familiar with all of this, but there's so many skilled activists out there who are doing things already. They're already out there leafleting and they're talking to people. This is just another tool they can have if they want to do something more whimsical that's a little different from what they're already doing. You can download brochures and hand them out. I actually just did this in, I was in England and I did this in York at their Christmas market just for fun. I had this big roll-up banner and I just unrolled it really quickly And I leaned it up against a tree and I just started handing out brochures to anybody who would take them. And and I'd see people with dogs and I'd just lie to them and I'd be like, this is for your dogs. And they went, oh, and then they would look at it and they'd walk away and then they would look back at me and I'd just be like, bye. It's just the brochure is the website in short where it's like we look like you're selling and then at the end you're like, why are you upset? The whole brochure is on the joke until the very end. Until the very end, until the very last, the the last page is, did you know that you can feel this way about all animals and here's some resources on the website. Uh And so I have all that stuff on the website, but I also have, I wrote down how many, I have volunteers who are running the farm in other countries. They've translated the website into other languages. 
I give them the brochures and they translate those and they're doing dog meat tastings. We're in Brazil and Spain and Norway and where else? The Netherlands and Finland. I just got an email that that just got finished. So what's nice about that too is it's really centered on their cultures, you know, so the cowboy doesn't translate in Spain as much. So they're doing amazing work and it just brings tears to my eyes how lovely all these people are and they're all bringing their own skills to it that the Spain one is just off the... So, yeah, no, I can imagine seeing other people run with this idea and Mm -hmm. and make it international. It's so exciting. And speaking of international, I know that some people have said that the site is is racist since there are cultures Mm -hmm. in which it's considered normal. Yeah, this 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 drives me crazy. Like, well, anyway, U.S. but it's so crazy the way people think. All right, go well, ahead, Jess. No, that's how I feel too. It's so upside down because your whole point, right, is that it's no worse to eat dogs than other animals. But can you talk about this reaction and how you think they're thinking about it all and, and how you yeah. respond to it? Yeah, I think that we all want to be very sensitive to the experiences of different people. I have this in my FAQs, is Elwood's organic dog meat xenophobic? And it's actually not. It's actually showing to you that The cultural bias we have in our country is, I mean, even just the bias we have against the animals that we eat. Culture should not dictate what we put on our plate. It shouldn't be our ethics. And I think that if you have a problem with Elwood's, um, I have trouble articulating it. And I just want to be very careful about what I'm saying. There was a point when it first came out that Elwood's was accused of being racist and I got canceled and somebody messaged everybody on my Twitter feed and was just like, don't follow this account. But I think that we are getting to the point where this has entered the conversation so much that it stops being about race and starts being just about the animals, which is where we need to be focusing on it. And for that matter, Elwood stands with the South Korean farmers who are being attacked right now. If you're going to let everyone farm, let everyone farm. So It just seems so illogical to me. I don't want to get in trouble either, but, you know, I'm worried about it. Because the whole point of your site, or the whole point of the mega, not mm-hmm. not the site itself. I mean, the whole point of the site itself is that it's fine to eat dog meat. Yeah, so it's, why, it's fine. how could people have a problem with that? And the whole point of the meta kind of argument is that Eating dogs is no different than eating other animals, so you shouldn't eat any of them. That's the point you're trying to make. It's the opposite of saying eating dogs is a terrible thing to do or a more terrible thing to do than eat the animals that people Mm -hmm. in other countries eat. It it would help if people could think straight. It just seems like when it comes to animals, people's brains get short-circuited. Is like, Do you think that? And do you think that this is one of the ways of kind of drilling through that? I do. And I think it's funny because one thing that really expanded my veganism was a lot of people, even vegans, saying, you know, well, you're going to increase consumption of dogs at this point. You know, if you keep selling it like this, you're going to make people curious. And the awakening of being like, I guess I don't care if people eat dogs. If you're going to eat a pig, you're going to eat a dog, you're going to eat a chicken. Maybe the dogs would have a better experience than pigs in captivity. I don't know. I think it's all messed up. So I kind of entered this weird, this weird nihilism space. I mean, viscerally, I understand that reaction, but logically, it doesn't make any sense at all for any vegan. I mean, you know, of course, like, and viscerally, it's not that different for me. I mean, there is Mm. something, it's weird, but there is something Mm. that, that, creeps me out even more than looking at other animals. But that's just me being stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Another technique that you've used is bus ads. Is that right? I had an ad on the London Underground this summer. Oh, Underground, um, okay. On the subway, yeah. And then I've had some billboards. I have a billboard up right now in Peoria 
It was great because the space was donated by, I think it's a Peoria animal rights activism group. They get the space and they were like, we should do it as an Elwood space. So it's up right now. It was up earlier last year. I have an ad right now. I'm going to show it. I'm really excited about this. This is my first print ad. It was in the Seattle Stranger, their holiday magazine. And so I got an ad for... Oh my God. That's amazing. Um, Did you get any pushback by the magazine or like... No, this is lovely. The woman who does the ad placement for the Seattle Stranger loves this. She's not even vegan. She's just like, I love this. You get so much interaction. So I'm from Pacific Northwest and the... Seattle Strangers connected also to the Portland Mercury. And I did a Valentine's Day ad last year for an event for a romantic dog meat harvest event followed by a romantic dinner. And I did it as a Facebook and in part of their email series. So it was great. It's like, what should we do for Valentine's Day? We should go have a spa or we should go do this. So when she reached out to me about this print ad, I was very excited. I've been thinking about this. Tell me what you think. So they... Oh my God, I can't believe I'm about to say this. Okay, they do this thing called Hump Fest, which is a amateur porn <laughs> festival. But it's fun because it's it's for the whole neighborhood. Everyone goes and they go to, go to these things. But the, the ad placement before the festival is so affordable. To, and the idea of making a dog meat ad and the, what a receptive audience that would be. Wh- whoever is open-minded enough to be going yeah. to this, this amateur artistic porn fest, they might like my dog meat ads. And she was like, you should do this. So I'm... I'm thinking what kind definitely. of commercial. Oh my God, it, definitely. So people other than vegans, do they find it funny? They find it funny and they find it thought provoking. And actually what's really lovely is there's a long tail of it is there's a respect from them. Like I think that there's a level of the intellectual play of Elwood's once you get it is really entertaining. And so I've had like the vegetarian chef who messaged me last year, you know, he he gets what I'm doing. He finds it interesting. And then he messaged me like four months later about something that he saw that aggravated him. And he's like, it reminds me of your stuff. And I'm like, that means he's still following. That means this this vegetarian is still in the comments. And I have meat eaters too who follow. And even if they think it's funny, they share it and they're going to reach other people who may be more sensitive than they are. So the shareability of it keeps it going. I think it's such an important thing to always remember that just because people's immediate reaction to something that you do is negative doesn't mean it's not going to have an impact, especially if it's something that makes them keep thinking. Yeah. And Marianne asked if people find it funny. I know that humor is a tough issue for animal rights advocates since it's hard to find anything funny in what's happening to animals. I also have done stand up and I am dubbed the vegan lesbian killjoy. I kill joy, not animals. So people are by and large making fun of us rather than the other way around. So why is humor important? So it's funny with the stand-up stuff. I was having trouble doing stand-up because I started stand-up at the same time as I went vegan. And so my jokes weren't about veganism. But as I got more into veganism, I got more and more depressed. Yeah, totally. And I remember it's, my... The my world ther- is not funny anymore. My therapist being like, I think you're really funny. I think you should really do some jokes about veganism. I'm like, there's nothing funny about maceration. Like, I can't get there. The audience is going to hate me. And I thought what was funny is this is the first funny thing that I felt about veganism that I was just like, oh, it's funny because I'm mocking the industry and mocking the words. I like to say that I'm not mocking farmers. I'm just mocking the human experience of this dissonance that we have. But the humor is really important because it keeps you going. Like for me, I don't think that I could have done this for two and a half years if it didn't have that amusing, dark humor aspect of it. And it wouldn't be shareable without it. And it's funny how many people are like, is this a joke? And I really want to say, no, it's not a joke. It's the reality of 
billions of animals everywhere. But at the same time, okay, it's a little funny. Wiener dogs are funny. I have to confess, I'm not a dog person. So I find dogs even funnier. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That's so brilliant. Speaking of funny, tell us a little bit about your 4-H chapter. Oh, God, I just launched my 4-H chapter. So I had posts about my 4-H chapter, but it didn't exist. And what's really nice about the Elwood universe is stuff can come and go and it doesn't matter. I purposefully, you know, I have children with all different names. Brandish is my favorite name right now. Um, <laughs> Brandish is, has had some trouble with 4-H where he's been caught crying as he's having to give up his dog. So I have some 4-H posts, but I just launched the page on my website about how you can sign up your kids. And it was spurred by, I hate saying this as a vegan, but I did go to the county fair. I miss going to the fair. And I feel like it's activism at the same time because I'm going to go see things that are horrifying that are going to give me inspiration. So um, I went through the 4-H tent and was just so upset. And so all I did is I took pictures of all the 4-H displays and I took their brochure and I took it home and then I just spun it into the dog thing. So I now have 4-H brochures and a 4-H page. And if you want to sign your kids up, you can. And what's great is they raise the dogs just for like six months. And then we auction them off and the kids get a portion of the proceeds. I mean, it's funny. And at the same time, when you think about it, this is exactly what happens to the kids in real life. Because yeah. for them, they're real animals. They're not just like, you know, just like dogs are. I mean, one yeah. of the reasons we care so much about dogs, I think, is because we know dogs. You know, we've met yeah. them. It's funny because I moved to a rural area when I was... um 12, 13, and all the kids did 4-H. And I remember going once to a 4-H meeting with my friends, and it was the meeting where they all put rubber bands on the tails of their sheep to make the tails fall off. And I remember just being like, that seems awful. Why can't they keep them? And this seems painful. And the kids are going, well, this is what we're taught, and this is how it happens. And, you know, they're just regurgitating what their parents have told them. And I remember trying to question and being like, hello in there, like, you can't agree with this. And they're like, nope, we have to. This is the marching orders. And I remember going home and asking my mom, like, well, I really want to do 4-H. I'd like to have a a sheep. That sounds lovely. And my mom was like, well, are you willing to kill it at the end? And I was like, what, you kill it? I thought these were pets that you just had a sheep and they told you how to care for it. And they're like, no. So it's shocking. Yeah. You had mentioned you've done some in-person events and that people do in-person events with your Mm -hmm. materials. Can you just tell us a little bit about how it goes? Like, how emotional does it get? And how do you deal with that? And how do other people deal with it? It sounds terrifying, to be honest. I think that I must be wired funny. It's really exciting. Yeah, no, I, you seem a little bolder than me. Oh, I don't know. I think I'm just looking for any interactions. It's pretty heart pounding to be out there, to have these conversations. Yeah. When I was when just in York, just handing out brochures, I had a man, it was a man and woman and a baby carrying. <laughs> they were looking, they were just daggers at me. And it was funny because meanwhile, I was talking to a vegan activist who had come by and it was like, I love what you're doing and I really get this. And so from the the, the couple's perspective, me and this woman are having a dog meat deal because I'm sharing oh, my right. brochure and yeah. stuff and the person's talking and the gestures are all very positive. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I know. That's the thing. The interactions to me feel I'm very hopeful about them. Like, so the angrier they are, it is somebody saying, how dare you do this? And then you follow up with well, do you eat other animals? I'm sorry, are you vegetarian? Is that why you're offended? And they're like, no, I just think this is wrong. Then you can be like, so, but what if they're raised for it? Does that make a difference? They're like, no. And I'm going, well, what is the difference between a dog being raised for it and a pig? And then they go, well, one's a pet. And I'm like, pigs are pets. And then we go from there and I say, so this isn't real. And it's meant to have you have this internal conversation. What is this about? And they go, oh, I feel so relieved. And I'm like, 
But is it a relief for the billions of animals that do experience this? And they go, oh, my God, I get it. I get why you're doing this. And they may not say it to my face, but they will take the brochure and they'll walk away. And Mm -hmm. then they have to have this internal debate with themselves. Sometimes there are people who are like, especially at Vegandale, I had a big booth. And so most people thought I was selling dog treats. So they'd come up with their dog. And these are people who are vegan, vegetarian, curious. So when they come up with their dog, and I'm like, no, 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 these are dogs. You can't feed that to your dog. They have, again, a moment of, holy, I can't emotionally function right now. Yeah. yeah. And then when you talk them through it, they're like, so that's the vegan experience. You're like, yep, that's the vegan experience. We're just erasing that bias you have about some animals are objects. And it's really, and the thing is that I don't do a lot of in-person events. It's just, I don't have the experience. I, I'd like to do more. But the people who are doing great things with this, there's a lot of activists and they share their videos. A man named Cliff in Belfast does a lot of Elwood stuff. And the conversations with a, with a skilled outreach person the dog meat thing works so well. They've figured out how to seamlessly yeah. have that transition between this is real to this isn't real. Why do you feel this way? I share a lot of those on my Instagram account. Those conversations are really powerful. I think that's exactly, I mean, what you said, it, it requires a skilled activist. So much of animal rights work does. I mean, mm-hmm. there are so many fine lines to be drawn and careful communication, and it's hard. And and I just have so much respect for the people who do it. I I would have a tough time with it. I kind of interrupted you about the couple with the baby carriage. (laughs) No, that didn't end well. I play a role when I do this as being super cheerful because I'm like, this experience is going to be so memorable when you interacted with the lady selling dog meat. And then if you're in England, you're like the American woman who was selling dog meat. (laughs) So I was just like, I don't know what the problem is. Are you vegetarian? You just kind of be kind of a little clueless. What's the problem? I don't get it. And then he refused, just like, leave, leave town, get out now. And I was like, what if I told you it's not real? And he he couldn't comprehend. He was just like, go away, leave. And I was just like, okay. So I just backed away. And then they glared at me for a little bit longer, took some pictures and left. And so they never found out it wasn't real. Even though I told them it wasn't real, even though I was trying to hand in the brochures, they were so upset that they just walked away. I'm laughing and I just feel so bad that I'm laughing because I appreciate where they're coming from. Yeah, they probably so, could well, learn a little bit more, but they're trying to stick up for animals. And here I am. Yeah. How, how do you do when you're watching a sitcom and there's a, a misunderstanding? Like, let's say it's Three's Company and like Jack and Chrissy are in the apartment, but Janet doesn't think they are. Because I have to change the channel because I'm mortified. I can't handle any oh, talk. I love it. Of, you, you're and all about it. Right? I'm all about it. I've been watching Tears right now. That's kind of my my I old mean, comfort stuff. Like, we're yeah. living in the past here. Three's I Company. I yeah, love yeah. Three's Company. <laughs> Rest in peace, Suzanne Summers. Anyway, last question before we move on to our bonus content with our flock today. So it's the beginning of the year and just looking ahead. What's next for you? Like, where Where do we go from here? You've kind of, I don't know, conquered the world, I would say, lightly. So now what? <laughs> Well, it's really kind of stressful because I kind of feel like I got the tiger by the tail for a lack of a vegan metaphor. I'm sure there's a vegan alternative. He's my friend, the tiger. He really likes it when you got him by the tail. Yeah, and, but we're going to go places and I don't know if I have a good enough grip. I'm working. <laughs> Someone said in the chat, tiger lily by the roots. I got the tiger lily by the roots. I don't want it to fail. And I also, I'm very much aware of how far can you go with a dog meat campaign. So I know that there's going to be a limit. So in the next year, I'm going to try and create some like kits so people can do dog meat tasting. So the idea would be perhaps you could apply for 
a dog meat tasting kit and I'll give out a certain amount and it'll be funded. So that way you can receive all these things. You can get a t-shirt and brochures and things. And I would like to start having meetings with people who are actually doing this so they could give the advice. You know, if I had a couple recorded videos telling people how to do dog meat tastings from the people who are actually doing them, giving their advice, I think that'd be great. I have some dream projects right now. There are some dog shows that I'd like to do some things with and I was just working on a billboard for that just before this call. So we'll see if I can get that going. My tagline is, if you don't place here, you always have a place at the table, on the table, something like that. Oh, my God. I don't think you can do that in person. You'll end up dead. I know, but think about these passionate dog lovers, these dog lovers who are like, I love my dog so much that I'm going to spend every moment in shampoo every single strand of their hair, and then I'm going to go eat a cow like I know. I know. (laughs) I think a lot of this is just like every time I see like a dog in a snowsuit, it just pisses me off so much. (laughs) Vicky, maybe we should make that sentence the uh, audiogram for the social media. (laughs) Just that sentence by itself. (laughs) Amazing. Molly, I, I, I love you. I adore you. Really, truly, you surprised us. And I I feel like nothing surprises us ever. So can you tell our listeners how they can follow along and maybe help you out in any way? Yes. So you can share the website is elwooddogmeat.com. I'm on Facebook and Twitter as Elwood Dogmeat. Instagram is Elwood's Organic Dog. I have a Patreon as well. You can find it on my link tree, which it'll be easy to find. I'd love any support or any donations through PayPal is also on my link tree because that money goes to billboards and goes to maybe that dog show. It just helps me help the activists who are doing things on the street. So that would be amazing. Just going back to that dog meat tasting kit, I want to see that grant application to like match fund. I just really (laughs) want to read it. Like I want to pour myself a glass of wine, put my feet up and read your grant application. (laughs) Anyway, Molly Elwood, thank you so much. Stick around because we have a QA and a with our flock, but we so appreciate you. And we are just so happy that you were able to spend this time with us today. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Social media is such an important part of the landscape today, even if you don't like it. But please do include our henhouse in your digital horizons. You can like us and follow us on Instagram and TikTok and X and Facebook by searching for Our Henhouse. Of course, you can always find us online at ourhenhouse.org where you can check out past episodes or support our efforts. And you're always welcome to email us at info at ourhenhouse.org if you have any questions or if you want to share something you'd like us to discuss on the show. Thanks so much and see you online. Anxiety's rising. We have some doozies today. I love, <laughs> it's always fun looking for them. Well, sometimes it's very wearing on the nerves looking for them because one has to look at ag sites and, you know, they're not the cheeriest places to be. But this week was very rewarding, I thought. All right, this is from Watt Poultry. Does agri-food industry give too much power? <laughs> it's just so funny. Does agri-food industry give too much power to consumers? And the subtitle is, A Beef Producer and Agriculture Podcaster Suggested the Industry Should Focus More on Getting Consumers to Trust that the Farmers Are the Ones Who Have the Most Knowledge.
This is by Roy Graber, and I think I mentioned it's in what, Agnet? Uh, like, <laughs> really? They shouldn't give power to consumers. They should just get consumers to trust them because they have the most knowledge. All right. He starts off by saying, uh, you know, commenting on the times we live in when food consumers have less knowledge of agricultural practices than they have ever had before. You know, I agree with Roy there. Like people have no idea how bad it is. I mean, you know, there's a little bit of um, complicity, but they still, they have no idea. But he goes on to say, we also live in a time when the consumer seems to have more of a say in what kind of practices are being done. Oh my God. Imagine that. Uh, they don't have a whole lot of say or else, you know, it wouldn't be the nightmare that it is. He thinks the whole, you know, all of cage-free egg stuff, slower growing broilers. Yeah, the regular consumer really knows a lot about that. Crate-free pork, no antibiotics ever, meat. Oh my God, the, like these people are crazy. They don't want any antibiotics. Consumer demands for products carrying these labels seem to be increasingly driving methods used on the farm. Oh my God, imagine that. They're responding to consumer demand. It's ridiculous. Oh, all right. So he's talking about this woman, Natalie Kovarik, who is a cattle farmer and the co-host of the Discover Ag podcast. And she quested at, at this recent speaking engagement at the Farm Bureau, American Farm Bureau. She questioned whether the agri-food industry is giving too much control to the consumer. It seems to me the consumer has no control whatsoever. Why are we handing over so much power, she asks. Why don't we sometimes step back into that more offensive role <laughs> where we're saying, no, we're the experts. We know what we're doing on our farms and ranches. Yeah, that is pretty offensive, Natalie. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Well, it's sad because, you know, they already have that role. People already trust them way, way, way more than they should. And they just want to increase that. And, you know, they're in a deal with the consumers. Consumers don't really want to know what's going on and they don't really want to tell them. That doesn't mean that Kovarik thinks building relations and trust with consumers is unimportant. Oh, of course, we want them to trust and we want to have relations with them. We just don't want to, like, have to do anything that they say. I don't know. Is that what she's saying? And she says, I'm not so much interested in, in getting them to understand everything I do, but I am really, really as a producer in favor of getting them interested in trusting what I do. <laughs> I bet you are, Natalie. I bet you are. Oh, that is hilarious. All right. From the Free Range Thoughts column by Jack Hubbard in Meeting Place. Lab-grown meat, 2024's dark horse candidate. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, of course, he calls it lab-grown meat. That's what they like to call it. Of course, it isn't grown. In, it was developed in a lab as our most scientific advances, and now it's grown in uh, whatever you call them, breweries or whatever. But I, I, I digress. Lab-grown meat is here, he says. You can only find it at a handful of restaurants in the U.S. and Singapore. Will that change in 2024? Perhaps. Ultimately, it's a matter of time. So, yeah. Jack is like on board. <laughs> he points out that there are hundreds of top scientists around the world backed by billions of dollars who are trying to solve the cost issue, which of course is the problem, you know, it costs too much money to make it at the moment. You know, if they put the money that they're putting in, in, in subsidizing uh, animal agriculture into it, uh, we would be better, well, I don't guess I can. 
when they can, that is solve the cost issue. Its impact should not be underestimated. And so he points out that advocates, many of whom are animal rights activists, say lab-grown meat is a clean analog to natural meat, while supposedly having benefits for the environment or personal health. He doesn't contest those benefits. He just uses the word supposedly. But there's a downside that they don't mention. (laughs) It's another one that's so funny. The downside, counting against the benefits. He doesn't even mention the benefits for the animals, but counting, putting those aside. The downside is how lab-grown meat could displace family farmers. (laughs) Oh my God. If lab-grown meat takes off and begins to replace natural meat, he says, then the number of livestock and livestock producers will fall. Well, yeah. (laughs) Some families that have been farming or ranching for generations will see their legacies end. Oh my God, the tragedy. Processors will also be affected by fewer livestock. Like we're going to stop doing this so we can save the people who run the slaughterhouses? Is that is that really the goal here? Uh, you know, everybody has, well, not everybody has a job, but like lots of people have jobs and things change and then they get different jobs. Like that's the way capitalism works. That's the way the world works. That's the way everything works except for agriculture. It's sacrosanct. Uh, it, that's not him talking, that's me. So, so he goes on to say that the next effect will be feed. Lots of grain grown in this country is fed to livestock. If lab-grown meat is able to displace a large portion of the farm-raised meat market, then that will reduce the feed crops grown. And then he goes on to say with plant-based imitation meat, soya peas might be grown to, proce- to be processed for protein. But the chemical growth medium for lab-grown meat is a pharmaceutical product. Like, we're still going to eat We're not just going to eat pharmaceutical products. I promise you, there will still be plenty of reasons to grow food. And so people will still have jobs doing that. And like, what is your point? We should all stuff. This would be an argument for all stuffing ourselves to the gills at every meal to keep those farmers in business. It could have a depressing effect on land values, rural job loss linked to raising and processing livestock because there's just no better jobs and we really want to preserve those jobs of, of people who live who work in slaughterhouses. Centralization of the food supply in the hands of fewer and few, fewer people is also likely. <laughs> like the meat industry is not consolidated. This is hilarious. So, you know, all these, these are his negatives. I, I don't like, those are the problems he sees. He does get to the point. Uh, he says, lab-grown meat companies may have forgotten one thing. The biggest factor in determining the ball game is consumer sentiment. Will people eat lab-grown meat? I don't think they've forgotten that factor. I think it's kind of an important factor on everybody's mind. He finally gets to his point. He's starting this website called labmeat.com. And uh, they're going to discuss all of these issues, like the fact that um, these cells uh, that are being grown are behaving like a tumor. Do you want to eat a tumor? I ask. There are no long-term health studies. It frequently happens when there's a new thing that there's no long-term studies. <laughs> I don't know. What are you going to do? What they use in synthetic growth serum. The advocates are going to paper over inconvenient truths or inquiries. Wouldn't it be terrible if there was an industry out there that was papering over inconvenient truths or inquiries? Just, uh, just a, what a nightmarish scenario. There are two ways to look at lab-grown meat's future, he says. Either it flops or it doesn't. Well, yeah, I guess that's right. With the, and I guess it could be somewhere in between. With the amount of scientific brain power and investor money, I tend to assume they will eventually figure out how to scale it and breakthroughs could occur at any time. So 
Yeah, like he seems to be against it, but you know, I'm my guess is going to he's he's just about to invest his own money in it. That's just my guess. All right, finally, best quotes of 2023. This is from the Writer's Block column by Thomas John. Did I mention who the who the last one was by? I'm not sure whether I did. It's from the Free Range Thoughts column by Jack Hubbard, also on Meeting Place. And the title of the article is Lab Grown Meat 2024's Dark Horse Candidate. But this one that I'm going to talk about now is by Thomas Johnston, also on that same site, meetingplace.com. And he, the title of this column is Best Quotes of 2023. The, these aren't all that interesting to us, but I thought a few of them were really interesting. So I just picked them out and I thought I'd let you know what the best quotes are. Because I like some of them myself. From Abel Oliveira from the Jensen Meat Company, on manufacturing plant-based meat alternatives, this is what Abel had to say. Ultimately, these companies want to mimic our product. So who better than us to make that product for them? Well, it looks, you know, you can't beat them, join them. Looks like he's on board with that sentiment. I would love to see just the plant-based producers, you know, making the money and not the meat companies, but, but you know, that's not the way these things work. I'd really like to see animals out of it. All right, here's one from Alton Kahlo, an economist from Steiner Consulting. Animal welfare claims are not going away. Diversifying the portfolio to appeal to California, Massachusetts, or segments of consumers in other states, even without a legal requirement to do so, may be the business case for this. You know, he's suggesting that the that the indus- pork industry in particular let go and just give up and stop fighting Prop 12 and face the fact that they have to get just rid of gestation crates. I mean, they don't have to make very many improvements, but they do have to do that one. I wish they would listen to him. Listen to Alton, everybody. Everybody from the industry who's listening to me, which is probably not too many people. <laughs> All right, Russell Cross, who's from Texas A&M and is an animal science professor there, is asking, what happens in most universities around the country is if you have five faculty and two retire, you may get to replace one. There's going to be a tipping point. The industry needs to ask the question, how sturdy is the pipeline? And he's talking about the decline of collegiate meat science departments. Nobody wants to get into this business. And can you imagine why? All right. This is from Buzz Samuelson, who's a retired operations executive. And he's talking about that company that got into all sorts, PSSI, I think it was called, all sorts of trouble hiring children to clean meat packing plants. Whether it's your people or contract people, if something happens in your plant, it's still on you locally and nationally. It's in the public eye. Yeah, could you please remember that, folks? Stop doing this dreadful, disgusting behavior. All right, my favorite from from just the charming, the ever-charming Nicolette Han Nyman. Uh, he used to be a vegetarian and now, uh, you know, married a rancher. So she's decided to like uh, write a book called Defending Beef and become a meat eater. I'm sure you're dying to know what Nicolette feels about the world. I've ultimately decided, oh, aren't we glad that it's the ultimate decision after all the back and forth? I've ultimately decided if animals are raised well, that we're living up to our obligation as humans to those animals. When we do that, there's nothing ethically problematic about eating them. Fuck you. (laughs) Just honestly. Oh my God. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. 
that's it for this week's show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be honored if you would join our Flock Friends community starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. Visit ourhenhouse.org slash support to check out our tiered membership levels with really great names, by the way. You can become part of our Chick Click, our Squawk Squad, our Hen House Heroes, or our Barnyard Benefactors. Some of the perks include being part of a community with great alliteration. I'm kidding, but I'm also not kidding. But some of the real perks include weekly bonus content and get this, monthly invitations to join Marianne and me for a live recording of an Our Hen House podcast episode, followed by an opportunity to meet with the guests. And since Our Hen House is a 501c3 nonprofit, your donation is fully tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Another great way to support us is to give us five stars on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts or leave us a friendly review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Also, like us on Facebook where you can also leave us a review or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Our Hen House. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast and to Veronica Kalinska who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. And special thanks to Jen Riley. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so much for your support, compassion, and for your dedication to animals. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye.